Good morning. In today's headlines, the latest on the Israel-Hamas war, intense fighting overnight and another Hamas commander killed as families of hostages and legal experts decry the terror group for crimes against humanity. The House passes an Israel-only aid package to boost much-needed defenses. We'll tell you what's next and why President Biden says he will veto. As pressure from global leaders mounts, the U.S. is calling for humanitarian pauses to get aid to civilians in Gaza and to possibly get hostages out. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty of fraud and money laundering, this over his role in a scheme that cheated customers and investors out of billions of dollars. Some GOP senators turning against their Republican colleague, Senator Tommy Tuberville. They say he's endangering national security. Hear Tuberville's response. While most Gazans live in poverty, their leaders are billionaires. Find out how they build up so much wealth while their people suffer. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. Also for me, I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is finally Friday, November 3rd. Yes, and Evelyn, in that House-approved aid package for Israel, there's money for the iron beam defense. It's really impressive. It uses lasers to shoot down the rockets. Apparently, it's just short range, but it was tested before successfully, just not in combat. Yeah, and some other pros to this is that it can actually be mounted on hardware assets in the in the sea and not just on land, and that it also it's just a few dollars per shot with unlimited ammo if there's power. Oh, wow. That's, that's big. All right. Uh, in today's top news, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel on his third trip to the Jewish state since the war began. He met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu this morning. We'll have more on the visit soon, but first, a quick update about the situation on the ground. Israel's military says it now has Gaza City surrounded. Intense airstrikes and fighting overnight, with four more Israeli soldiers reported killed this morning. That brings the total to 23 since the ground incursion began. The IDF says its forces clashed with multiple terrorist squads inside Gaza overnight and that a Hamas battalion commander was taken out. The IDF says Hamas attacked their troops with improvised explosive devices and anti-tank missiles and that IDF soldiers on the ground directed aircraft and artillery strikes to neutralize that threat. Over 100 trucks of aid crossed into Gaza yesterday. That's the most in one day since the war started. The IDF says it is facilitating the entry of water, food, medicine and medical equipment for Gazan civilians. One point of contention has been fuel, which was not included. UN agencies and hospitals say they are running out. The IDF released a recorded phone conversation from a source in the Hamas-controlled Gaza healthcare system today. The official says Hamas takes any fuel brought to Shifa Hospital. They also talk about how there are over a million liters of fuel stored underground. The IDF says over 8,000 rockets have been fired at Israel since the October 7th terrorist attacks and that 242 hostages, including 30 children, are still inside the Gaza Strip. And Hezbollah leader Saeed Hassan Nasrallah will make his first public speech since the Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th. The Lebanese terror organization has engaged with Israeli forces along Israel's northern border since the war began. 
Nasrallah's much-anticipated comments could indicate a turning point in the Iran-backed group's role in the war. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu previously warned Hezbollah against opening a second front in the war, threatening counterstrikes of unimaginable magnitude. House Republicans passed their $14.3 billion bill for Israel yesterday. It cuts IRS funding under the Inflation Reduction Act, a non-starter for Democrats. 194 Democrats voted against it, 12 in favor. The bill sets aside $4.4 billion for Israel to replenish its defenses. It also includes $4 billion for Israel's Iron Dome and David's Sling air defense systems. Systems critical for intercepting terrorist rocket and missile attacks on civilians. Another billion goes toward developing the Iron Beam defense system, which is literally a laser designed to shoot down short-range rockets. Each Iron Dome interceptor missile costs roughly $50,000. The lasers are estimated to cost a little, as little as $2 per shot. The bill includes funding for other areas as well, like $3.6 billion toward State Department operations in Israel. Two GOP members voted against it, Representatives Thomas Massey and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Democratic senators have declared the bill dead on arrival. The White House said President Biden will veto the measure if it makes it to his desk. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the next steps in Congress. National Security Spokesperson John Kirby says the White House has made it clear President Biden will veto an Israel-only bill if it gets to his desk. He says four urgent critical national security interests need to be included in the measure. Israel, Ukraine, the Indo-Pacific, particularly for the manufacturing of submarines, and border security. We wouldn't have submitted it that way if we didn't believe that they all weren't important and should be acted on together. Kirby says another non-starter in the House GOP bill is only security assistance for Israel and no humanitarian aid for Gaza. Additional funding to help get food, water, and medicine to these people. They didn't cause this. They didn't ask for that. Hamas doesn't represent them. They're victims too, and they need that support. The House on Thursday passed a resolution condemning support of Iran-backed terrorist groups Hamas and Hezbollah at colleges and universities, as well as campus anti-Semitism. The resolution urges enforcement of federal civil rights laws to protect Jewish students from anti-Semitism. The House will come to order. 22 Democrats and one Republican voted against it. Some of the world's top law firms declared they will not hire anti-Semitic law school graduates. They urged school deans to take action in an open letter on Wednesday. It decried harassment, vandalism and assaults on college campuses and condemned rallies calling for the elimination of Israel and the death of Jews. They wrote such anti-Semitic activities would not be tolerated at any of our firms. Around two dozen firms signed the letter, including some of the world's most powerful in terms of revenue and size, like Kirkland and & Ellis and Latham and & Watkins. They stated recruiters will only consider graduates ready to be part of a workplace with zero tolerance for any form of discrimination or harassment. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Speaker Mike Johnson says the House will consider a fresh aid package for Ukraine. He wants to link it to border security, but says there's no way Biden's request for roughly $106 billion could pass through the House. And now we're bringing on Carrie Sheffield, a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum, to discuss the potential aid to Israel and Ukraine. Carrie, good morning. It's great to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Do you expect aid to go to Israel and Ukraine, but just in two separate bills? Well, uh, it's, it'll be interesting to see what actually ends up passing. Uh, we know what the Senate Democrats have said. We know what the president has said. 
which they need to be linked. Uh, I think logically it doesn't make sense. I, I don't understand why uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, who is Jewish, who has said that he's very supportive of Israel, would not support uh, an Israel funding bill. Um, and same thing with the president. So I, I just don't, I don't understand their approach. Um, I know they want to link it together because they want to push through the funding for both countries. Um, but uh, as far as you know, the House Republicans are concerned, these are two very distinct issues. Um, and with Ukraine, that there needs to be some type of U.S. border funding um, in tandem with Ukraine funding. Um, and so far, Democrats have not produced a bill toward that end um, that House Republicans could get behind. So when you're talking about negotiations, the Speaker of the House, Speaker Johnson, what they passed last night was really starting that negotiation. So from a policy perspective here, what's more pressing, urge aid for Ukraine or Israel? Oh, I think Israel, absolutely. I think that's that's the most pressing matter, and that's why I think it would make more sense to pass the uh, Israel-only funding bill right now at this time. Right, and what are the steps forward to make that happen, given that Senate Democrats say that's a non-starter if it's only for Israel? Well, it's interesting because uh, the way that this funding has been paid for on the Republican side is to cut the IRS funding. Now, there's a lot of support among the average American who is worried that the IRS will be targeting small businesses and targeting um, you know, lower income Americans who, who, generally speaking, are more likely to be targeted by the IRS for um, auditing. Um, but if that's a non-starter for Democrats, I'd love to hear a proposal from them. What would they accept as an alternative? Because we've got 33.6 trillion, more than that, um, in national debt, and we do need to have spending that is paid for. Um, so if it's not going to be the IRS funding, how about maybe some of these green giveaways that were passed in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies um, to rich um, so-called green energy companies and, and initiatives that don't really pan out and end up backfiring. Let's cut something from there. That's what I say. Right. The budget needs to be balanced. Is it feasible to send aid to both countries? Well, you know, Speaker Johnson has said that he's he is open to sending aid to both countries. Um, I just think that the urgency of Israel is so clear right now, um, and the fact that it's already been passed through the House is a, is a key hurdle um, as the news is unfolding um, to help Israel, which is our key ally in the Middle East and the only democracy in the Middle East. That's what's ironic. You know, Democrats who love to say that they support democracy and democracy is under fire. Well, this is the only democracy in a very hostile region, and they are not supporting it. So why does Israel need this aid? Of course, they need to replenish their Iron Dome and so forth. Well, yes, um, uh, when you're talking about um, Iran, which has now received, um, according to some estimates, 80 to $100 billion um, in additional oil funding because of sanctions that the Joe Biden administration has looked the other way upon um, and is bankrolling, uh, reportedly, this conflict, um, bankrolling Gaza, bankrolling Hezbollah, um, there's there's a need to have some sort of counterbalance um, by by good forces who don't support the way the terrorism, the way that Iran is funding. And just in one sentence here, what about the the comparison between 60 billion for Ukraine versus 14 billion for Israel? Is that reasonable? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the uh, you know the math. You have to look at the specifics. That's really what it comes down to. I think with Ukraine, we do need to see um, very specific auditing um, and and the the risk to the contagion effect um, in Israel. I think is is at this point actually more great 
Um, so I'm not sure I agree with that ratio. When I say risk contagion, I'm talking about the potential for um, spillover effect to see this, this conflict continue to grow even further in the region of the Middle East. I think there's more risk of that right now as opposed to more contagion um, happening in Ukraine. Carrie Sheffield, Senior Policy Analyst at the Independent Women's Forum, thank you for your analysis. Thank you. While Israel's military said they had surrounded the biggest city in Gaza and were moving further into its center, Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Tel Aviv today. Antony's Daniel Monahan has more on his visit and on U.S. plans to call for temporary pauses in fighting for the delivery of humanitarian assistance to Gaza. As Blinken left Washington, he mentioned he would talk about concrete steps to reduce harm to civilians in Gaza during his meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This is the second time he's meeting with Netanyahu since the war started nearly a month ago. The Secretary of State will also meet Jordan's foreign minister on Saturday. The U.S. government had previously said that a ceasefire would only benefit Hamas. But National Security Council spokesman John Kirby distinguished between a ceasefire and humanitarian pauses. What we're talking about are temporary, localized pauses in the fighting to meet a certain goal or goals. Kirby didn't quantify the extent of such pauses, but said each one would have to be negotiated separately and distinctly. What we're trying to do is explore the idea of as many pauses that might be necessary to continue to get aid out and to continue to work to get people out safely, including hostages. The National Security Council spokesman responded to whether the U.S. ever provided humanitarian pauses in its fight with al-Qaeda. I'm not aware of any, um, but I would remind you that al-Qaeda, you know, wasn't in possession of 200 hostages. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder also addressed the pauses. The U.S. government does support humanitarian pauses to enable humanitarian aid to get in for hostage, uh, hostages to get out. Mounting casualties among Palestinian civilians, along with reported shortages of food, water, medicine and fuel, have intensified calls by global leaders for a pause in fighting or a ceasefire. Israel has dismissed those calls, saying it targets Hamas fighters, whom it accuses of intentionally hiding among the population and civilian buildings. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Families of hostages, legal experts, and former presidents of Israel's Supreme Court held a news conference earlier. They accused Hamas of crimes against humanity. Family members described their emotions as they recounted their experience from October 7th, their loved ones missing for almost a month now. My mother-in-law died in my wife's arms while she is kidnapping along with her daughters. I don't know, after a mo a one month that I haven't seen them, I don't know to, to describe to you if and when they will come back to me. Holding civilians without medical care and basic needs is a blunt violation of human rights. We won't accept any ceasefire without the release of the hostages. For my grandmother and a lot of other hostages, it might not be tomorrow. We need to bring them home back now. 
The Hamas terrorist group is still holding over 240 hostages. Several hostages have been released, but there are no updates on the condition of the remaining hostages. Israeli citizens are starting protests demanding the release of hostages as the IDF steps up its operation inside Gaza. The governors of Texas and Oklahoma visited a hospital in Tel Aviv yesterday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt made the trip to visit survivors of the October 7th Hamas attack. The governors heard survivors' accounts of the attack and emphasized that the terrorist group needs to be eliminated for peace to prevail in the region. You have to be able to live in peace and not let these guys come at you. So I'm just thinking if they... If 3,000 people would have come to Oklahoma or coming to Texas, we'd be on a warpath right now. Yeah. So, um, and the fact that the world doesn't understand what's happening, that's where we're here to try to come back and carry that message back to the U.S. And they're not terrorists with guns and a pickup truck anymore. These, these, these folks are, are, are trained. And there was 3,000. This is very coordinated. Hamas needs to be eliminated, obviously from Israel, but also from Gaza. Uh, but from the earth, Hamas needs to be eliminated. Stay with us, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty by a New York jury. He was charged for his role in a scheme that cheated customers and investors out of billions of dollars. We have the details. And the FTC's lawsuit against the online retail giant Amazon has revealed a secret price-raising algorithm, netting the company massive profits. It's good to have you back with us. The Senate has confirmed three military officers for top positions despite Senator Tommy Tuberville's blockade on promotions. Here's more on that and the pushback Tuberville is facing from his colleagues. The yeas are 95, the nays are one, and the nomination is confirmed. The Senate confirmed three military officers for top positions on Thursday. General David Alvin was approved as the new Chief of Staff of the Air Force, making him the top uniformed official of the military branch. Admiral Lisa Franchetti was confirmed as the new Chief of Naval Operations. And Lieutenant General Christopher Mahoney was confirmed to serve as Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, making him the branch's second highest ranking uniformed official. This despite Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville's hold on military promotions. No matter where you believe it or not, Senator Tuberville, this is doing great damage to our military. Numerous Republican senators attacked Tuberville on the Senate floor on Wednesday night. That was after the Senate started voting on promotions. And just like he'd been doing since February, Tuberville on Wednesday night said, Mr. President, I object. The objection is heard. Tuberville is protesting a Department of Defense rule, which says the department pays for the abortions of some service members. He says he won't support the military promotions until the rule is abolished. Here's his defense on Wednesday. It's about keeping politics, politics out of the military. I did not put it in the military. Joe Biden and Secretary Austin put politics in the military. And it's about the right to life. Every day this continues is a day that Democrats think abortion is more important than the nomination and our military. Tuberville says if the promotions were really important, the Pentagon would simply get rid of the abortion rule. And he maintains the rule violates federal law under the Hyde Amendment, which bars the use of federal funds for abortion in most cases. The Senate is able to make the promotions by using a different process, but each promotion must be handled separately and takes much longer. The White House on Thursday was asked about the situation. 
Would the president support changing the Senate rules to get around Tuberville's blockade? That's for the Senate to decide. The president wants, as Kareem said, wants the hold lifted. Senate Democrats are now talking about changing the rules so they can go around Tuberville's hold faster. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. Moving on to FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried, who has been found guilty. A 12-member New York jury convicted the 31-year-old on all seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. It comes in relation to his role in a scheme that cheated customers and investors out of billions of dollars. Entity's Cost Temenes has the details on the trial. Sam Bankman-Fried's conviction on Thursday was led by Manhattan's top federal prosecutor, Damian Williams. Bankman-Fried was found guilty on all counts, including fraud, money laundering and other charges. So the cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. This kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time, and we have no patience for it. It's a warning, this case, to every single fraudster out there who thinks that they're untouchable, that their crimes are too complex for us to catch, or that they're too powerful for us to prosecute, or that they could try to talk their way out of it when they get caught. Those folks should think again and cut it out. The verdict marks a significant victory for a broader crackdown on white-collar crime. Bankman Freed had pleaded not guilty to all seven counts. He attempted this week to convince jurors that while he had made mistakes and may have been in over his head attempting to run the cryptocurrency exchange, he did not knowingly defraud investors and placed the blame on his former colleagues, arguing that they were the ones who acted fraudulently and without his awareness. But under cross-examination from prosecutors, he often spoke evasively and struggled to remember many events. The trial featured the testimony of Bankman Freed's former partners and employees, including former Alameda CEO Karen Ellison, former FTX Chief Technology Officer Gary Wang, and former FTX Director of Engineering Nishat Singh. All of the above had already pleaded guilty to fraud charges. Close to $10 billion of customers' and investors' money went missing in the 2022 collapse of the crypto exchange and its affiliated hedge fund, Alameda Research. Not mentioned in the trial were the more than $100 million of FTX money that Bankman-Fried donated to politicians prior to FTX's collapse, which included more than $5 million to President Biden's 2020 election campaign. Bankman-Fried now faces decades in prison. The sentencing is set for March 28, 2024. His defense attorneys are expected to appeal the verdict. Cost MNS, NTD News. New information is coming to light in the Amazon FTC lawsuit. A newly unsealed version of the lawsuit reveals that Amazon made $1 billion through a secret price-raising algorithm. Here with us now is NTD business host Don Ma to tell us more. Good morning, Don. Please, so what is in those unsealed documents, the highlights? Yeah, of course. Um, just a bit, a bit of background info here. Uh, when the Federal Trade Commission and 17 states sued Amazon for antitrust violations this fall, there was a heavily redacted portion of that lawsuit that referenced a secret algorithmic pricing tool. But there were very few details on that at the time. But now a newly unsealed version has fewer reductions to it. And it shows something pretty interesting, Evelyn. 
It's a bit complicated here, so stay with me. Apparently, Amazon created a secret pricing algorithm to identify Amazon products that it thinks other stores are tracking and products that it thinks other stores will follow Amazon's pricing if Amazon increases the price. And the point of this was that after other retailers began matching or increasing their own prices, Amazon would be able to continue to sell the product at an inflated price because it did increase that price. And it wouldn't make them stand out in terms of pricing. So uh, newly unredacted portions of the suit allege that it has earned Amazon more than a billion dollars from U.S. households. That is interesting to know what's really going on behind the scenes there. So what is Amazon's response to these allegations? Well, Amazon's spokesperson, Tim Doyle, said that the FTC grossly mischaracterized uh, the pricing tool. He says the tool was simply to use to try to stop Amazon's price matching, where some prices became so low that they actually became unsustainable for Amazon. He says the project ran for a few years uh, on a number of products, uh, but it turned out that it actually didn't work for them as intended, and then afterwards Amazon scrapped it. And it's been many years since Amazon did so. And an Amazon lawyer also said that the FTC is misunderstanding how online pricing and competition work. So they don't agree here. Hmm. So maybe there is more, some more investigation needed here. Um, anything else that you can tell us today? Sure, just a couple more updates. Uh, the National Association of Realtors announced yesterday that its CEO, Bob Goldberg, is stepping down. Uh, the announcement comes days after the nation's largest trade associations was, was found liable in a lawsuit. A uh, Missouri jury found that the NAR and two brokerages conspired to keep real, real estate commission rates artificially high. Uh, the jury determined they were liable for $1.8 billion in damages. Um, in other news, financial services company Charles Schwab uh, laid off about 2,000 of its employees this week. That's about 5% of its workforce. Uh, a company spokesman said layoffs were a cost-cutting move. Charles Schwab's uh, third quarter income was reported at just over a billion dollars, down from $2 billion, actually, in the same quarter last year. And as well, their stock, their stock shares have dropped about 34% this year but uh, rose 3% in trading yesterday. So just a bit of news uh, on those fronts here, but that's all from me this morning. So hopefully that lawsuit surrounding the NAR can actually help more Americans enter the home market. Yeah, I mean, prices are pretty high right now. I mean, I think people will welcome anything they can get. That's great. Well, Don Ma, host of NTD Business, thank you. Thank you. Stay with us. We hear legal analysis of Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr.'s testimony in the civil fraud trial. Can a construction manager be liable for alleged appraisal fraud? Let's find out. The judge in former President Trump's 2020 election case lays out rules for jury selection and sets key dates for the fast approaching trial. Hear the details after this short break. Welcome back. Former President Trump's sons, Don Jr. and Eric, said they know very little about their father's financial statements. They said this repeatedly in their testimonies yesterday. The financial statements are at the heart of the New York civil fraud case against them. NDD's legal correspondent, Arlene Richards, has more. 
Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump are not accountants. They said their duties as executive vice presidents don't include working on their father's financial statements. State attorneys asked Donald Jr. about his role in signing off on statements of financial condition. Donald Jr. repeatedly said he relied on the accountants and that he signed the statements after getting confirmation from them. He told reporters this case is truly a scary precedent. I'm apparently guilty uh, of fraud for relying on my accountants to do, wait for it, accounting. I mean, think about that. What, what does that do for literally any other business? You pay experts millions of dollars to be experts. You sign off on what they give you, and you're liable. And by the way, Both brothers were questioned extensively about their knowledge of statements of financial condition. The statements include the values of the senior Trump's properties and ultimately determine his net worth. Attorney General Letitia James claims the brothers were aware of and knowingly participated in a long-running scheme to falsely inflate the company's assets and that the fraudulent values were used to land loans and insurance policies on more favorable terms than they were entitled to. Her expert, Michael McCarty, on Wednesday testified that the banks lost $168 million in interest because of the misrepresentations. Well, and by the way, again, the same supposed victims, because it's a totally victimless thing, are saying, no, we did our own due diligence. We made hundreds of millions of dollars. Judge Arthur Angoran, who was presiding over the trial, stated in a previous order that the banks did make lots of money. But the focus of this trial is on how much more money they could have made if not for the alleged fraud. The judge has already determined that fraud occurred. He now must determine the size of the fine the Trumps are facing. Eric Trump is alleged to have signed several guarantor compliance certificates for his father. And those certificates relied on the financial statements. He testified that he had very little knowledge about those statements. When pressed about a 2013 email with part of a financial statement attached, he conceded he was familiar with them but said he would not have personally worked on them. The senior Trump took to social media defending his sons and blasting the judge. Leave my children alone, Angoran. You are a disgrace to the legal profession, he said. Donald Jr. completed his testimony without any cross-examination from defense attorneys. Eric Trump will be back on the stand Friday. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Ivanka Trump has filed an appeal to block a judge's order for her to testify in her father's civil fraud trial until an appeal can be heard by the New York court. Thursday's appeal asked the higher court to pause the entire fraud trial against Donald Trump, two of his adult sons, and his company until Ivanka Trump's appeal can be heard. In a filing Thursday night, the court denied the motion. Eric Trump is expected to testify in the trial later today. And now for some legal analysis on the testimonies by the Trump brothers, let's hear from Hans von Spakovsky, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Good morning, Hans. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me back. So what is the conflict centered on Eric Trump's sending things to the controller for financials versus for a statement of financial condition? Well, Let's go to what uh, Don uh, Jr. said uh, in his press conference. I mean, he's exactly right that senior officials of a company rely on their accountants, their accounting staff, to put together the numbers. It would be one thing if the state could show that they took the numbers given to them by the accountants and changed them. 
But there's no such evidence uh, whatsoever that I've seen yet in this trial. And so I, I really don't see how uh, Letitia James thinks she can prove fraud uh, when there's no evidence, actually, even from this testimony. And that the accountants. The sons, that the sons did that. Yeah. The accountants yeah, I, are just I, doing their job. I mean, they wouldn't. Right. And so, I, I, look, this whole case uh, is, is, it seems like much ado about nothing because none of the banks from which money were borrowed have complained about any of this. No one was defrauded. Uh, no one actually lost money. The banks all had their loans paid back. Uh, I think this is a political persecution by Letitia James, who actually ran for office, promising she would get um, Donald Trump. And think about what happened uh, yesterday when the judge threatened to put a gag order on the lawyers, the lawyers for criticizing the fact that this judge is constantly consulting with his law clerk in the courtroom. I've, I've never seen that happen before. It's almost as if there are two judges in the case. And the fact that he thinks he can gag the lawyers when the First Amendment allows them to criticize the judge, his staff, shows again, I think, the bias of the judge in this case. Well, let's look at Eric Trump. He's a construction guy. He says he pours right. concrete. So why would he even be involved in this since that he, he focuses on operations, not even on appraisals? Well, you've got that exactly right. The fact that he has been targeted as a defendant when he obviously is uh, the guy who puts the operations in uh, every day and doesn't deal with financial issues like this tells you uh, once again, that the attorney general of New York is targeting him for political reasons. They want to get the Trump family, and their way of doing it is uh, apparently to try to confiscate as much of their money as possible. That's what seems. That's what this case seems to be about. So, what do you expect to happen at Eric Trump's testimony today? Well, I think he's going to say, "Look, I, I didn't have anything to do with these." financial statements. To the extent I saw them, uh, if I did see them, I relied on our accountants. They're the professionals. They're the ones we pay to put the numbers together. So how does that work? I mean, lenders are supposed to do their due diligence, like Don That's Jr. Right. was alluding to. So if they give out a loan, wouldn't that mean that they want to do business with this person? That is exactly right. Anybody who has uh, uh, entered into a mortgage on their home knows what does the bank do? They, they don't take your word on what the uh, house is worth. They send their own appraiser out to take a look at it. And that's exactly the same thing that happens with banks uh, who are making very large commercial loans. So obviously the banks didn't think there was anything wrong with these uh, appraisals. So again, what is this case about other than trying to get the Trump family and the Trump business? Okay, let's talk about a hypothetical here. Let's say that a bank right. gives the loan. They want to go with that rate, but there may have been some fudging of the numbers on the Trump side. Would that mean that there's reason for the state to go in and start to break all this down and, and level allegations? No. Look, in fraud cases, you normally have to show that someone was defrauded. 
that would not be the situation in, in your hypothetical. The, the bank had its loan repaid. The interest that they charged on the loan was repaid. Uh, there was no loss to the bank. The fact that maybe they could have made more profits in, in some uh, for, for speculative reasons, that is not uh, that is not a basis for a prosecution by the state. Well, thanks for bringing clarity to this. Hans von Spakovsky, Senior Legal Fellow sure. at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for having me. The judge in charge of former President Trump's 2020 election case has set some important dates for a jury selection. Judge Tanya Chutkin told special counsel Jack Smith and Trump's lawyers that they have to make a list of questions to use for screening potential jurors by January 9th. If they can't agree on certain questions, they have to inform the judge in a joint filing explaining each side's position. Potential jurors will come to the courthouse in Washington, D.C. and fill out the questionnaire on February 9th. Both Trump's lawyers and the prosecutors can look up information about the potential jurors on the Internet, but they can't talk to the jurors directly and they can't use non-public databases. Meanwhile, former Trump's legal team is appealing the partial gag order placed on him by Judge Chutkin. The attorneys wrote in the filing that no court in American history has put a gag order on a defendant who is in the middle of campaigning for public office, especially not the leading candidate in a presidential election. And Blinken just met with Israeli President Isaac Herzog ahead of the meeting with Netanyahu in Tel Aviv. This marks Blinken's third visit since the October 7th Hamas attack. Blinken spoke on Israel's right to defend itself and the continued effort to bring the remaining hostages home. Here's Blinken. We stand strongly for the proposition that Israel has not only the, the right but the obligation to defend itself and to do everything possible to make sure that this October 7th can never happen again. Um, and at the same time, as you've just uh, made clear, uh, how Israel does this matters and it is very important that when it comes to the protection of civilians who are caught in a crossfire of Hamas's making, that everything be done to uh, protect them and to bring assistance to those who so desperately need it uh, and who are not in any way responsible uh, for what happened on October 7th. So we're working on all of that uh, together, uh, but we have a shared determination uh, and that determination uh, will not wane. Uh, we also are thinking every single moment of our hostages. Uh, so many Israelis, Americans, other uh, nationals, and we are determined to do everything that we can to bring them back safely, to bring them back to be with their families and loved ones. Coming up, federal agents raid the home of a top fundraiser for New York Mayor Eric Adams' campaign. Find out what investigators were looking for. Giving money to other countries so migrants can stay there. Hear more about the new plan from the White House to tackle illegal immigration. A warning from a former Google executive that artificial intelligence can be used to create deadlier pandemics. We hear from the head of a preparedness company with wide knowledge of AI about this when we come back. Good to have you back. We're heading over to New York, where the FBI has raided the home of a top fundraiser for New York City Ma Mayor Eric Adams. 
Federal agents burst into the Brooklyn home of Brianna Suggs, one of Mayor Adams' campaign consultants. The raid was conducted yesterday morning. It comes as part of an investigation over an alleged kickback scheme involving the Turkish government and a Brooklyn construction company. Mayor Adams weighed in on the raid at a press conference yesterday. I owe my campaign to the highest ethical standards. Any inquiry that is done, we're going to fully participate and make sure that is done correctly. Uh, I have not been contacted by anyone from any uh, uh, law enforcement agency, and that's why I came back from D.C. to be here to be on the ground and look at this inquiry as it was made. Adams was on a trip to Washington for a slate of White House immigration meetings, which was cut short due to the investigation. According to law enforcement, the raid was connected to a broader public corruption probe. It aimed to establish if money was illegally funneled to Adams' 2021 campaign for mayor. The raid was purposely conducted while the mayor was out of town, according to the New York Post. Investigators are looking into whether Adams' campaign conspired with the Turkish government and the construction company. The Post reports that the investigation focused on gathering evidence of foreign funds entering his campaign through straw donors. According to the warrant obtained by the New York Times, agents were looking for evidence of the theft of federal funds and wire fraud. The U.S. has a new strategy to prevent people from crossing the southern border illegally, that is, giving money to other countries where immigrants can stay. Entity's Arian Pastar has the details of that plan. Stopping immigrants from coming to the U.S. illegally by giving money to other countries. That is a new plan the U.S. is expected to announce on Friday. President Biden is set to host leaders from Latin America and the Caribbean at the White House on Friday. That's to discuss economic issues and immigration. And in some cases, the two topics seemingly go together. The U.S. is planning to give money to the Inter-American Development Bank. The bank then uses the money for a financing platform that will serve middle- and high-income countries in Latin America. The hope is to expand economic opportunities in the region so immigrants do not head to the U.S. Now, U.S. officials are presenting this idea in a way that doesn't relate to immigration only. They say these funds are critical to boost the economy and also to bring back the supply chain to the Western Hemisphere. They say this is a crucial step in countering Chinese influence here in the West. And officials named a few areas where the West could compete globally, such as the production of semiconductors and medical supplies. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. AI is in the spotlight again, with tech giants and political leaders coming together for a summit in the UK to discuss the risk of AI models. This while an, an executive, ex-executive at Google is warning that artificial intelligence could be used to create more lethal pandemics. I wanted to learn more about this possibility, so I spoke with the founder of a preparedness and threat response company. Joining me now is Phil Siegel, AI expert and founder of Captors. Thank you for your time today, Phil. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Does AI open the door to people experimenting with pathogens and as a result making them more contagious and deadly like the ex-Google executive Mustafa Suleiman claims? I would doubt that it would cause uh, the wet lab, the labs that are actually using uh, or manipulating these uh, uh, pathogens to uh, to do more or less or whatever. The, the thing that you might worry about is um, people that are trying to figure out how they might 
um, create a pathogen um, or to uh, actually figure out how they might uh, distribute one, uh, bad actors and so forth. I do worry much more about that uh, and people's intentions uh, in spreading either known pathogens or trying to create new ones. Can you explain that process of how AI might be used in distribution in that case? Yeah, so the same kind of uh, worries that I have about uh, bad actors with AI, just doing simple things like um, uh, uh, scamming people at home and so forth. Um, the, the tools that we have uh, are getting better and better and simply uh, using these algorithms or even in some cases the large language models with, with good prompts, asking them to uh, help you create a, uh, you know, an effective distribution mode or figuring out how, you know, where the soft spots might be in a country or in a region uh, is something that I do worry about and something that we need to uh, make sure that we're preparing for on our end, the good I guys. See. And so how is AI used in the manipulation of biological substances? I, you know, that's a very good question. I'm not sure that it, that it is in, in the form you we would call AI, certainly not um, the models that we've, you know, that we've been uh, become accustomed to in the last um, several, uh, you know, kind of several months. But uh, I'm sure there are people, just like you've heard, uh, there are people using it for good to create new drugs um, by asking uh, AI models to figure out how different compounds might behave in the body, uh, attacking different diseases and so forth. Um, I'm sure there are bad actors asking um, uh, AI models to do the same thing for, uh, for pathogens. The question is, are, you know, how well will those work uh, with the technology that we have today? Well, what I would say is the drug development side still has a long way to go. Um, though it is making progress. And because of that, I'd say probably the pathogen creation um, from bad guys probably has a little bit of time before it would be something we'd have to worry about on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, we need to be ahead of the curve on this one. Phil Siegel, Absolutely. founder of Captors, thank you for your time. Thank you, I appreciate it. Just ahead, while most Gazans live in poverty, their leaders are billionaires. How do they build up so much wealth while their people suffer? to have you back. As most Gazans live in abject poverty, some of their leaders are worth billions of dollars. How did the few leaders of Hamas generate so much money for themselves? NTD's Faye Quarter asks the experts. Hamas's leader, Ismail Haniya, is estimated to be worth between four and five billion dollars. This according to Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Hamas's deputy chairman is estimated to be worth three billion dollars. And Hamas's former leader is estimated to be worth four billion. For perspective, one million seconds is less than two weeks, while one billion seconds is equal to around 32 years. They've gotten to be so rich by effectively fleecing their own people. Middle East expert Gerard Felitti says a major way they do this is through taxes. 
including a 20% tax on smuggled goods. They tax goods and services just like any government does and collects that revenue, but basically they use it for themselves instead of for providing services. Reports are, especially in the Middle East, that their leaders live it up. They have extravagant parties, they have extravagant palaces, uh, they have servants. Meanwhile, Financial World estimates that 60% of Palestinians live below the international poverty line of around $2 a day. Aside from taxing their own people and putting much of those taxes directly into their own pockets, Hamas's leaders have other sources of wealth. Iran gives them around $100 million annually, which it moves through to Hamas via shell companies. Qatar since 2014 has been giving hundreds of millions of dollars to Hamas. There's also a Syrian fund where several billion dollars have been embezzled. Hamas has benefited from cryptocurrencies and through charities. Middle East expert Barack Sina says these charities and cryptocurrency funds are constantly being identified and shut down. Hamas then opens new ones elsewhere. Sina says Hamas's leaders use a lot of this money to live luxurious lifestyles in Qatar. Much of the rest of it goes to fighting Israel. A quarter in TV News. Well, they say the light of sun is the best infect disinfectant. And then, you know, actually Globes reports that the tunnels are primarily used to smuggle goods in, and that's what the Hamas leadership puts that 20% tax on, and then they get wealthy. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for that addition. We are heading now to the second part of our broadcast now. Intense fighting overnight in the Israel-Hamas war, another Hamas commander killed with Gaza City encircled. And families of hostages and legal experts condemn the terror group for crimes against humanity. The U.S. could be facing a shortage of artillery ammo after providing military aid to Ukraine and soon Israel. We'll ask an expert about the possible shortage. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in his third official trip to the region since October 7th. Former President Trump made a campaign stop in Houston, Texas yesterday to talk about the future of oil and gas in the U.S. Don't let your mood be affected by the ending of daylight saving time. A neurologist gives us some tips and explains the science of the interaction between light and body. Good morning. Welcome back to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning again. Also for me, I'm Evelyn Lee. Let's get into our top news. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in, is in Israel on his third trip to the Jewish state since the war began. Blinken just met Israeli President Isaac Herzog and is expected to meet with Netanyahu very soon. Blinken spoke on Israel's right to defend itself and the continued effort to bring the remaining hostages home. We'll have more on the visit soon, but first a quick update about the situation on the ground. Israel's military says it now has Gaza City surrounded. Intense airstrikes and fighting overnight, with four more Israeli soldiers reported killed this morning. That brings the total to 23 since the ground incursion began. The IDF says its forces clashed with multiple terrorist squads inside Gaza and that a Hamas battalion commander was taken out. 
The IDF says Hamas attacked their troops with improvised explosive devices and anti-tank missiles, and that IDF soldiers on the ground directed aircraft and artillery strikes to neutralize that threat. Over 100 trucks of aid crossed into Gaza yesterday. That's the most in one day since the war started. The IDF says it's, it is facilitating the entry of water, food, medicine and medical equipment for Gazan civilians. One point of contention has been fuel, which was not included. UN agencies and hospitals say they are running out. The IDF released a recorded phone conversation from a source in the Hamas-controlled Gaza healthcare system today. The official says Hamas takes any fuel brought to the Shifa hospital. They also talk about how there are over a million liters of fuel stored underground. The IDF says over 8,000 rockets have been fired at Israel since the October 7th terrorist attacks and that 242 hostages, including 30 children, are still inside the Gaza Strip. Hezbollah leader Saeed Hassan Nasrallah will make his first public speech since the Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th. The Lebanese terror organization has engaged with Israeli forces along Israel's northern border since the war began. Nasrallah's much-anticipated comments could indicate a turning point in the Iran-backed group's role in the war. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu previously warned Hezbollah against opening a second front in the war, threatening counterstrikes of unimaginable magnitude. And at the same time, the U.S. has been under pressure to solve the munition shortage. Where does it stand now, and what will it mean for support to Israel and Ukraine? We want to bring in Andrew Thornbrook to find out more. He is a national security correspondent for the Epoch Times. Good morning, Andrew. Really good to see you. Now, first, just for some context, what is the importance of those 155 millimeter um, artillery to the U.S.? Why is this in particular, this particular type important? Yeah, so the, it's a great question. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so the 155 millimeter round is a high explosive artillery round. It's a NATO standard round that's used by all the NATO militaries, essentially. Uh, it's used extensively by the U.S. Army and the Marine Corps. Uh, this is essentially what you might consider to be the, the bread and butter of ground warfare, right? This is uh, a round that's used in any type of land battle. Uh, it would be used extensively in any ground war. That's why we've seen it being used in the numbers it has been in Ukraine, uh, where, for example, to this day, I think Ukraine is still using between six and 8,000 uh, 155 rounds a day uh, on the front lines. Um, so, so this is a really important round um, for, for conducting war uh, at any length. So there have been reports about the shortage for a while now, and the U.S. has been under pressure to solve that. So where does it stand now? Right. So it's a little difficult to tell. Uh, the United States is not uh, open with that number for national security reasons. Uh, that being said, there is a, a essentially a, a secret bottom out number, which is where the United States will not go below a certain threshold that it will not go below that it deems to be uh, essential for a minimal amount of deterrence and national readiness. Uh, the problem right now is whether or not that lowest number that we're probably pretty close to is actually enough for deterrence. As we're learning through the war in Ukraine, uh, it, it's most certainly, almost certainly not high enough. Um, and we, we've heard all of our military leaders, especially Army Secretary uh, Christine Mormus, say we didn't realize how much we, we still needed artillery. Like we, we, We've definitely 
underestimated this number. Uh, so right now, the danger is that in the 10 to 15 years that it's going to take us to modernize and uh, expand our artillery supply chains, uh, we're, we're essentially not going to have uh, as much as we might need if we got pulled, for instance, into another conflict, say, between North and South Korea or over with China over Taiwan. 10 to 15 years, that's quite the timeline. Now, in Israel, as we have heard, um, they're intensifying their ground offensive now. So how much support do they will they be needing from uh, the U.S. in terms of munition as well? And is it expected that the U.S. is able to support that? Yeah, so right now we can certainly support it. Uh, that largely has to deal with the fact that both Israel and Ukraine require largely different capabilities for their wars. Uh, Ukraine is highly dependent on the 155 artillery round. Uh, Israel right now is mostly dependent on what we might consider to be unique munitions, right? So these are uh, like interceptors for its Iron Dome system, for example. Uh, and for those non-unique systems, it, it's really at this point precision munitions missiles and other things like this uh, to take out senior Hamas leadership. Um, so on that front, we're okay. The problem is the longer Israel's war goes on, the less true that statement becomes. Uh, mm. So for instance, Israel will need an increased amount of the 155 round the longer this goes on, not only because the war will expand uh, throughout Gaza, but because it will need to have a greater deterrent on its northern border with Lebanon as well as around the West Bank, separating it and Jordan. Uh, and so there's this real issue that the longer Israel is at war, uh, the United States is, is going to have to start drawing um, from the same pot for both it and Ukraine. Interesting. And you just mentioned um, the timeline of 10 to 15 years is what it's needed to modernize, expand. Is the U.S. doing enough um, on that end? Well, right now, it, it seems the answer is yes. There's certainly bipartisan support uh, to modernize our supply chain, uh, but there are, there are hidden dangers there as well, which is, of course, uh, the issue of potentially, you know, war profiteering, these sorts of things. Uh, so right now, what we've seen the Biden administration lean into is this sort of rhetoric of uh, these supplementals towards Ukraine and Israel being good for the American economy. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we've seen... Um, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin explicitly say that most of these supplementals will go to what he called the coffers of American defense companies. Uh, so, so there is a, a more ethical issue here, which is, is the United States defense industry using Ukraine and Israel uh, to justify its own profits for the next 10 to 15 years over multi-year procurement systems? Um, with that being said, that continued profit is dependent on multi-year procurement. Uh, so that that will come and go. That will wane in terms of popular support with different administrations and depending on who's on con who's in Congress. Well, very interesting and very detailed insights. Thank you for that, Andrew Thornbrook. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. After the break, former President Trump makes a stop in Houston, Texas, to talk about the future of oil and gas. It's that time of year again. At the end of daylight saving time, we get some tips from a neurologist on how to protect your mood and health when clocks go back.
Welcome back. Senator Tim Scott is the latest candidate to qualify for a place in the next Republican primary debate. That means five candidates have now earned a podium in the November 8th debate taking place in Miami. Governor Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, and Chris Christie have all met Republican National Committee requirements. Just days before the deadline, Doug Burgum, Asa Hutchinson, and Ryan Binkley have not met the requirements. Former President Trump will not be appearing in the Miami debate, but will be appearing at a concurrent rally nearby. Trump said on Truth Social that his lead in the polls means the nomination race is over. And the debates seem to be a complete waste of time. Amid ongoing legal battles, former President Trump made a campaign stop in Houston, Texas yesterday. Trump said what was intended to be a small gathering on oil and gas somehow turned into a rally with a big crowd. Let's take a look. Nathan family, gun and country, oil, gas and guns. Houston, Texas welcomed former President Trump Thursday evening as he made a campaign stop in the world's energy capital. Oil and gas company Trendsetter Engineering hosted the event and has publicly endorsed Trump for president. Under my leadership, the United States became the number one producer of oil and natural gas in the world by far. Former president criticized the Biden administration's green energy policies and his push against the oil industry. Trump also said if elected, he would revive his former policies, which President Biden overturned. Within days of my inauguration, I approved the Keystone XL and the Dakota Access Pipelines. Literally within days, remember they were stopped, they weren't going to approve of them. He promised he would first tackle oil and gas if he came into office, as well as other social issues like parental rights, transgenderism in sports, and sex change procedures on minors. Who would have ever thought that one of the things that we would talk about would be, we will stop child sexual mutilation. State officials came to the event to deliver remarks. Texas Agricultural Commissioner Sid Miller said agriculture thrived under the Trump administration. Agriculture puts $200 billion into our economy every year. It's huge. We lead the nation in agriculture exports. Cattle, cotton, wool, mohair, horses, hay, sheep, goats. The list goes on and on and on. Congressman Wesley Hunt also spoke to the crowd, thanking the oil and gas industry and veterans. He said that we cannot have a future without you. NTD asked some rally-goers why they are supporting the former president on his second run, despite his indictments. Trump supports uh, freedom to do what you want, when you want, and how you want. Like, you should have the right to smoke. I don't smoke, I don't drink, but you should have the right to do that even if you want to. Well, I'm a veteran, and he passed Mission Act for me, and because he passed Mission Act, um, we were allowed to get... I was allowed to get the surgery I want. I waited years to get a tumor removed. And I remember two minutes after Mission Act passed, I get a phone call and uh, Trump helped save my arm. The stop takes place as Trump is in the middle of a civil fraud trial in New York City. Shortly after the event, Trump requested a stay on the gag order in the federal election case. Reporting by Chi Huynh, NTD News, Texas. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty. A 12-member New York jury convicted the 31-year-old on all seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. It comes in relation to his role in a scheme that cheated customers and investors out of billions of dollars. Entity's Cost MS has the details on the trial. Sam Bankman-Fried's conviction on Thursday was led by Manhattan's top federal prosecutor, Damian Williams. 
Bankman Freed was found guilty on all counts, including fraud, money laundering and other charges. So the cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman Freed might be new. This kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time, and we have no patience for it. It's a warning, this case, to every single fraudster out there who thinks that they're untouchable, that their crimes are too complex for us to catch, or that they're too powerful for us to prosecute, or that they could try to talk their way out of it when they get caught. Those folks should think again and cut it out. The verdict marks a significant victory for a broader crackdown on white-collar crime. Bankman Freed had pleaded not guilty to all seven counts. He attempted this week to convince jurors that while he had made mistakes and may have been in over his head attempting to run the cryptocurrency exchange, he did not knowingly defraud investors and placed the blame on his former colleagues, arguing that they were the ones who acted fraudulently and without his awareness. But under cross-examination from prosecutors, he often spoke evasively and struggled to remember many events. The trial featured the testimony of Bankman Freed's former partners and employees, including former Alameda CEO Karen Ellison, former FTX Chief Technology Officer Gary Wang, and former FTX Director of Engineering Nishat Singh. All of the above had already pleaded guilty to fraud charges. Close to $10 billion of customers' and investors' money went missing in the 2022 collapse of the crypto exchange and its affiliated hedge fund Alameda Research. Not mentioned in the trial were the more than $100 million of FTX money that Bankman Freed donated to politicians prior to FTX's collapse, which included more than $5 million to President Biden's 2020 election campaign. Bankman Freed now faces decades in prison. The sentencing is set for March 28, 2024. His defense attorneys are expected to appeal the verdict. Cost MNS, NTD News. The United Auto Workers Union is setting its sights on unionizing Toyota, Tesla, and other non-union automakers. UAW President Sean Fain said recent deals with big three automakers were so good, they have gotten raises even for non-union workers. This week, Toyota said they are giving across-the-board pay increases to production workers and skilled trades and lowering the number of years it takes for new hires to reach the maximum rate of pay. Sound familiar? Toyota isn't giving out raises out of the goodness of their heart. Fain said Toyota made the changes because they know the UAW is, quote, coming for them. He said the company knows that workers are watching. The UAW has tried for years to unionize Asian and European legacy automakers without success. The first Sunday of November is coming up, and that means we all get an extra hour of sleep. That's right. Daylight saving time ends this week, and we learn more about how this will affect you with a functional neurologist, Dr. Brandon Crawford. Dr. Brandon Crawford, it's great to speak with you this morning. How much of an effect on our mood and health does changing the clocks have? Well, that's a great question, and I'm actually asked that quite often. And what we need to understand is that light actually influences every biological process within our body. And what I want people to understand is that this thing called our circadian rhythm, or what I like to call circadian biology, not only affects our wake sleep cycles, 
but it can also influence the way we move and the way we think and so many other different types of things. And so when we think of this coordinated effort, I want you to think of like a conductor of a symphony, right? So if the conductor is off by just a little bit, that symphony can start to go awry. And our biology is just like that as well. Our neurochemistry is like that. So we are very dependent on a coordinated effort of light, right? And so just by setting the clocks back an hour or ahead an hour, that affects the symphony. So we need to be aware of this. We can have some very detrimental effects on how our circadian rhythm can be altered. And even some doctors are warning that there is a bigger risk of heart attack and stroke during these clock changing times. But do we see this only in the spring when we lose an hour or is it also in the fall? I mean, who doesn't like getting an extra hour of sleep? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we can actually see this both directions, right? So, uh, of course, we think about losing an hour, gaining an hour, whatever. Here's the thing. Uh, it's off, right? So the sun rises. We're supposed to be getting that low angle sunlight when the sun's rising and we're supposed to be in bed as the sun's go going down, right? So there's 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 problems with both directions here. So, Dr. Crawford, how can someone be prepared for the upcoming clock change? Yeah, so the, there's actually some very powerful uh, strategies that are actually pretty simple. And so basically you want to reset these clock genes, right? So you want to be up and awake and outside while the sun is coming up. I also want you to get light exposure midday so you get those long arm for red wavelengths and then be outside as the sun is setting. And that's going to help to reset those clock genes. That's a very simple strategy, but it's a very effective one as well. Yeah, and you're so right about light having such a profound effect on the body. I mean, in my studies on circadian rhythm, I came across an experiment in which a man actually went into a cave, no sunlight, and then he would just send a signal up to the surface every time he would wake up and sleep. And it was found that he had a 36-hour day instead of a 24-hour day. He was getting 24 hours awake, 12 hours sleeping, so he was free running down there. Exactly, and that's the interesting part. Again, if we reference a symphony, right, so a symphony can run on its own. Uh, but we want it to run all in a coordinated fashion, right? So we need that conductor. Now, the circadian uh, clock genes, right, is what we refer to them. It's a whole host of them. Uh, they are very dependent, again, on the sun rising and the sun setting. Um, circadian, actually, circa uh, and DN, right? So this is a 24-hour uh, cycle uh, that it's referring to, right? So we are set both genetically and epigenetically to run with the sun rising and setting. And once we start spending prolonged periods uh, in darkness or prolonged periods in light, those clock genes begin to be altered. And we start to have this altered neurophysiology from that as well. Do you think that we should be using daylight saving time? No, I actually personally don't think that we should. I think that uh, the use case is actually uh, somewhat antiquated. Um, I think that I'm going to vote in the favor of proper neurophysiology and health uh, rather than what it was intentionally uh, initially used for. Dr. Brandard Crawford, functional neurologist, thank you for your time. Thank you. Very interesting scientific take on this. Yeah, and all just to save energy in that World War I era. Hmm, yeah. All right, something to think about, but we have to wrap up our show here. We'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.